What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you. It is Wednesday evening, August 2nd, 2023, and tonight we're talking about a Cardinals win in which Dakota Hudson looked really, really good. That might not be something you would have expected to hear in the year of our Lord 2023, but it was true tonight as Dak had the slider working, had everything working for the first five and a third innings of this game over which he did not allow a hit. And then even after that, looked pretty sharp, got out of that inning with a double play in the sixth. And things kind of came apart for him in the seventh inning. I think we can talk about the reasons that that might have happened. Had a fun little back and forth with a guy on Twitter who thought that Ollie Marble should have known to take him out before the three-run home run that he gave up in the seventh inning. I disagreed with that, and I actually liked that Ollie Marmel let him stay through the end of the seventh inning. He finished the seventh, which how many times have we said that about a Cardinals starter this year, and was credited with the win as the Cardinals beat the Twins 7-3. to A little action from Jojo Romero at the end, Andre Pallante with a scoreless inning. But the primary focus of tonight, in addition to some Hudson talk, because we know that the starting rotation conversation is going to dominate the headlines over the coming months as we move toward the offseason, and it's an offseason in which the Cardinals are going to have to fill three rotation spots. We know that that's coming, but with the internal options that we're going to see the rest of the way, how can guys like Dakota Hudson maybe get on the radar? And I say that with a little bit of hesitancy because I know that Cardinals fans hearing it are probably like, no, that's not what we want. <laughs> but I think you got to be fair to a guy like Dakota Hudson, at least talk about the starts that he has. It's going to be interesting to see maybe the way the Cardinals handle the guys they have internally, if any of them do have good Augusts and Septembers. But I want to talk about Hudson specifically, and I guess give you my viewpoint on what he would have to do, what we would have to see in order to consider him for the 2024 rotation. And if you don't consider him, what do you do with him? Because he is still going to be around, at least in terms of team control. I'm not sure if he would have been eligible for free agency had he been up all year, but I know that because he hasn't been, I think it's going to kick in an additional year. I just don't know what that does to his arbitration. I think he actually becomes Super 2 retroactively and will therefore be eligible for four years of arbitration. But we'll talk about Hudson. We'll preview Matthew Libertor a little bit because he's kind of in that same bucket right now. Libby and Hudson, the two guys that are filling the spots of Montgomery and Flaherty at this point in the Cardinals rotation. But like I said, I want to spend some time tonight talking about something different, and that is the Cardinals outfield, because the entire Cardinals outfield tonight hit home runs, along with the starting DH, who often has also found himself in outfield positions this season in Alec Burleson. Jordan Walker, Lars Newpar, Tyler O'Neill, and Burleson all going deep in this game as the Cardinals erupt against Joe Ryan. 7-3, the victory at Bush Stadium by St. Louis. So we're talking a little pitching tonight. We're talking a little bit of outfield tonight. And oftentimes we'll talk about games, you know, now that the trade deadline is over, we're certainly going to talk about some of the interesting things we see in each game, but more than a wire to wire recap, I think we're going to always sort of cater our conversation and the slant toward, well, what's the impact on the future? What's the impact on 2024? Because that is obviously going to be heavy on the minds of Cardinals fans and the organization itself as they look to ultimately put this ugly 2023 season in the rearview mirror can't do it just yet, though. You've got two months of baseball left to play, and Ollie Marmel has talked a lot about how he wants to value this time and uh, try and use it to the benefit of the team. Win every day, have that still be the lasting goal, even if it's not the most realistic thing given their circumstances. But I think two of the more entertaining and interesting conversations about what the roster is going to look like six months from now, it's the rotation, it's the outfield, and tonight 
We had interesting points to draw from for both of those areas of the Cardinal roster. And so we'll do that tonight on B-Shape Daily. We'd love to have you guys subscribe. Hit that subscribe button if you are watching or listening right now on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash at bshafer12. Click that subscribe button, click like on this video, and drop your comment below with how much consideration you think the Cardinals should give Dakota Hudson. What if he ends up having a strong August-September? Would he be somebody that should be in the mix for the number 5 starter role next year? Or have you kind of written him off completely regardless of what your eyes are telling you if he has a good finish to this season? And drop your comments as well with your thoughts on what the Cardinals should do when it comes to Tyler O'Neill homering for the second straight game tonight, continuing to be a force for this Cardinal lineup now that he's back off the injured list. Are you starting to get the warm fuzzies about Tyler O'Neill again? Because when you think back to 2021, man, this is a guy that had it going on. Might play a little bit Tyler O'Neill audio for you tonight. The audio I would play would actually be from Tuesday night. I was not at Bush Stadium this evening. But in the time that it took me and my wife to change our 11-month-old son into his nighttime clothing, the Cardinals had hit three home runs in a single inning, three of the four that they ended up walloping for the game. And I don't know if that says more about the Cardinal bats or about my son's resistance to go to bed and get dressed for nighttime. I don't really know what the equation is on that one, but we'll try and figure it out tonight on Be Safe Daily. Subscribe on YouTube and hey, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. For whatever reason, I do not get good analytics data from how many of y'all are listening on Apple Podcasts, but I do get very up-to-the-date information on Spotify. So if you guys are clicking that follow button on Spotify, I notice it and appreciate it, but subscribe wherever it's convenient for you to catch B-Shape Daily and obviously the Cardinals content on YouTube is something you don't want to miss because I'll continue to do more videos that aren't just this podcast. I've done it a couple of times, but not often, but as topics come up throughout the day and the weeks ahead. That's something that I'll continue to do if it's the middle of the day and I've got 15 minutes to rant on a topic. I'll be happy to do that. So that's where you want to make sure you are subscribed on YouTube. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, is the channel name. All right, let's talk Dakota Hudson because his start tonight was looking for a little while there like it might be a legitimately special one. Had the no-hitter going into the sixth inning and it was as though Dakota Hudson heard what the Cardinals were recently saying about preferring to chase more swing and miss types of arms in their rotation and in their organization from a pitching perspective. And he said, oh, why didn't you say so sooner? Seven strikeouts across seven innings tonight for Dak. A lot of those coming on the slider, and it seemed like it didn't really matter if it was the true slider that just falls off the table, which was how he came up with his first strikeout of the night. I think he had a couple of Ks there in that first inning, so you could kind of tell from early on that Dak might have it going on tonight. But that first strikeout was just picture-perfect slider dropping off the table toward the outside corner off the plate to a right-handed batter, the quintessential slider strikeout low and away. But he also would have it sometimes, I don't know if this was by design, but it almost seemed like it would be backup sliders up in the zone that were getting it done. And I don't know if that was just batters not recognizing the spin or if it was something intentional that Dak was doing with the location change on some of those pitches But it certainly had a tight break to it, I think, tonight based on the way batters were reacting to it. Dakota Hudson getting that slider cooking was allowing him to become a more swing and miss oriented guy than we've really often seen from him over the course of his entire MLB career. Came up with the Cardinals right around this time back in 2018. Was a uh, beneficiary of the Cardinals making some moves at the trade deadline that year. Kind of a soft sell back in 2018. It was shortly after the Cardinals had fired Mike Matheny, brought on Mike Schilt as the interim. And Dak looked pretty good out of the bullpen that year for St. Louis. Had a 2.63 ERA, 
And even though he had walked a lot of guys, that was always kind of his thing, 18 walks in 27 innings that year, was able to have a nice ERA. And then the next year, he won that rotation spot over John Gant in spring training 2019 and finished the year with 16 wins and a 3.35 earned run average and finished fifth in the National League Rookie of the Year voting. Led the league in walks that year, though, and threw 174 pitches and had about 40 fewer strikeouts than keeping that ratio of one-to-one, just 136 Ks. That's been the story throughout Hudson's career. Even last year when he spent a good portion of the season in the rotation after the Tommy John surgery that he had, of course, he had that, I think, late 2020, spent a good portion of 2021 recovering from that, and then got his way back into the rotation in last year, obviously, was not very sharp with a 4.45 ERA and just 78 strikeouts in 139 innings. What's crazy about Dakota Hudson, though, coming into today, the number might have jumped a little bit based on the home run that he gave up in the seventh. But prior to today, and I'm not making this up, Dakota Hudson's lifetime ERA in the big leagues, I don't know if you would, as a Cardinals fan, be able to guess it unless you had it right in front of you. I'll give you a hint. It's well below four. 3.63 career ERA for Dakota Hudson coming into today in 408 and two-thirds innings pitched. 3.63, if the Cardinals had five of those in 2023 especially if they had a few more of those in their bullpen, this team might not be completely out of it and the season might not be over. That being said, the version of Dakota Hudson that we got last year was lesser than that. It was almost as if the FIP, the fielding independent pitching numbers that would say year over year that Dakota Hudson was pitching over his head that was getting away with things he should not have been able to get away with. FIP is a reflection of what you do without your fielders, right? And he had always benefited, I think, from a good Cardinal defense. And my take on Hudson used to be, don't care about what the FIP is because the Cardinals infield is immaculate. And he is a ground ball, sinker ball type of pitcher that's just going to consistently benefit from the defense behind him. Well, this year, the Cardinals defense has fallen off in some ways. There's been a lot of moving parts and some inconsistencies where you had Tommy Edmond playing shortstop and then it was Paul DeYoung and now it's back to Tommy Edmond after the trade. You've had several second basemen cycled through. Yes, Edmond had been a gold glover at second, but we're seeing more Brendan Donovan, Norlin Gorman has played there. Now it's kind of Taylor Motter at times. Um, it's a little bit of a different scenario than what Cardinals pitchers in general had gotten to have behind them in past years. And you add in the shift ban, I think that's something that would affect a guy like Dakota Hudson. And it's almost like the Cardinals recognized that that could happen and decided we're not even going to bring him up all year. Dakota Hudson had the opportunity coming into spring training to make this rotation. At least that was what they tried to say publicly. Really, if we were counting, we kind of knew the five starters and who they were going to be. Montgomery, Flaherty, Wainwright, Michaelis, Matz were the five. Dakota Hudson was a sixth guy that had experience, and I think the assumption by the Cardinals was, well, somebody's getting hurt, it always happens, and so really those six guys are going to form our rotation, and one of those guys is probably injured. The other five can go ahead and make it happen. I think they had Dakota Hudson penciled in as one of the six with the assumption that whichever guy gets hurt would obviously be on the IL and the other five would get after it. What happened, though, was a really poor spring training showing from Dakota Hudson. He was not sharp. And I can remember thinking that from the very first day of live BPs, watching him sitting in the dugout on one of the backfields going, oh, no, this is kind of the same version of Dakota Hudson that was laboring, slogging through the final portion of the 2022 schedule and then you had a pitch clock on top of that, which was not active there in spring training. And you could tell because, and when I say in spring training, I'm talking about just the very early days on the backfields 
at the Cardinals complex in Jupiter, they weren't using a pitch clock or anything like that during the live BP sessions. And Dakota Hudson was taking that quintessential 25, 30 seconds between deliveries. It really felt like it. You could tell man, this guy doesn't feel like he's confident right now is the impression that I can remember having day one of spring training. I think the Cardinals saw the same thing and ultimately had Dak down at Memphis for the majority of this season. And he pitched to a six ERA this season. He also had spent a lot of time on the injured list because he only made 11 starts and 48 total innings, which tells you he wasn't even getting close to five innings per outing. And even at AAA, Hudson with only 39 strikeouts in those 48 innings. So the bad spring, which caused Jake Woodford to end up getting Adam Wainwright's spot in the rotation when Wayno came up with that late camp injury, the one that he suffered back at the WBC, the World Baseball Classic. It was Woodford that got the opportunity as the number five to begin the season because Hudson essentially had the lock on it and all he had to do was just be regular in spring training and he really did struggle. And that basically carried over into the season where he was down at Memphis, had some injury troubles as well, but a 6.00 ERA in 48 innings with a still low strikeout rate. And for a guy that doesn't strike out a lot of guys, you can't really afford to walk as many of them as Hudson tends to. 17 walks in 48 innings at Memphis this year. Nothing crazy about that. But when you put it all together, a 1.85 whip, that that those are his numbers at AAA. So that's why even when he was healthy, that's why you never really saw him until the Cardinals absolutely had to bring him up. And they didn't bring him up based on anything based on his performance. It was simply... You know, eventually you do kind of run out of arms with some of the injuries and the trades that the Cardinals knew were coming. And so we've seen Hudson here in St. Louis for a little while. He's mostly been out of the bullpen. But then last Friday when Michaelis got ejected after 14 pitches, Hudson just had to take the ball and throw 93 pitches and get close to five innings out of him. It wasn't pretty, but he did it. But I think that was maybe the kind of wake up moment Dakota Hudson needed that was like, all right, I didn't do anything all season to attract their attention to get me back in the big leagues. I am only here because they ha- are out of options, essentially, on, on other guys that they can rely on for innings. But he took the ball in some bad circumstances, and then five or six days later, whatever the carryover was from that, he's getting a chance to start. And my goodness, did he look sharp. How is it that that guy can have a 6 ERA in Memphis? Well, I think you're seeing a little bit of a more motivated version of Dakota Hudson, first of all. A lot of times, you can have a guy toiling away at AAA, and... It's not like he earns his promotion, but he gets one based on whatever factors and just kind of locks it in because that adrenaline going to the big leagues and, and really wanting to make something of your career, it's crazy the effect that it can have on somebody. And Dakota Hudson ends up doing a really nice job tonight. Now, in the seventh inning, I talked about how we might mention the reason that it went off the rails a little bit. I think it was starting to rain there at Bush Stadium, and you saw the moment when they brought out the towel and uh, maybe another rosin bag for him, ended up leaving that towel on the mound. And I tweeted right away, I said, I could totally understand if he's trying to go to that rosin bag and because it's damp and wet because of the rain that's beginning to fall, it's not really giving him the effect that he needs. And then I saw from Jeff Jones who said normally he would change shirts on a hot night like tonight multiple times, but he decided he wasn't going to change uh, jersey, uniform shirts, jerseys, until he gave up his first hit, which happened not until the sixth inning. And so his shirt was basically soaked through with sweat, which you might say, okay, that's kind of gross, but... Think about it. I mean, these guys are out there competing in, you know, feels like 100-degree temperatures probably. Upper 90s has been the norm here lately in St. Louis. And Dakota Hudson, you know, probably goes through some uniform tops. We've we've seen Jordan Montgomery. I think they said Jordan Montgomery actually changed his pants during his last start, which I felt like was a lot of information that I didn't need. But I get it. I get it. And I also understand when it comes to the rosin bag being damp on the mound, 
like I don't get it from a Major League Baseball pitcher perspective. However, I like to play a lot of disc golf in the summer in St. Louis. And on the disc golf course, I've got a rosin bag that, or a chalk bag or whatever it is, that you've got to have it nice and puffy and get your hands dry because my hands will sweat and then I will throw the disc and I won't grip it well and it's into a lake. And now you're sad because you're out 12 bucks or whatever those discs cost. In Dakota Hudson's case, he was letting every pitch kind of fly off his hand. It felt like a little early. It was topping off. It was landing above the strike zone. He hit a guy. He was missing high with everything. And so I think the sharpness was was going away a little bit there in the seventh, partially because he's probably wearing out approaching 90 pitches and hasn't really been a guy that's been a workhorse even when he's been healthy in the minors this year. But there's also the factor of I think the rain and the perspiration and everything was kind of getting to him at once. And so when you give up that three-run home run, it's like, all right, this was a nice story, but that's kind of a bummer way to end it. I do appreciate, though, Ollie Marmel allowing him to try and get that last out in the seventh, which he was ultimately able to do. Getting through seven, allowing three runs. Hey, it's a quality start. And you know what? If the Cardinals had had a bunch of starts like that instead of the ones that they were getting from guys like Wainwright and guys like Steven Matz before he really turned it around and guys like Woodford and basically everybody in the rotation at different times of the year, if they were getting seven and three from their rotation all season long, once again, this Cardinals team would be right in the thick of contention. So you take what Dakota gave you tonight, but how predictive, how prescriptive is it for what you might expect him to do moving forward? And perhaps even more importantly, how much are you moved to consider Dakota Hudson beyond just getting you through the rest of this year and then say, hey, whether you trade him, whether he's back in Memphis next year, whether you just let him go, whatever the case might be, don't really care, but you can't give him consideration for next year's rotation. I get it, but also there is the other side of it that you go, man, 3.63 career ERA. That That's the number, and that's in over 400 innings. And so across a certain portion of his career, he had to have been doing something right. 112 is the ERA plus, which means he's been 12% above average over the course of his career in that category. But the fielding independent pitching, which has never been something that I, and maybe as a, you know, as someone who respects the advanced stats of baseball, wants to make sure I'm up to date on everything and, and knowing what's going on. I've never really been as adept with FIP and as accepting of it because sometimes I think there is an old school attitude to it of there's more to pitching than just blowing it by guys. But also at the basic level, if you are missing bats, you are doing something right. And so I can definitely see where there is some merit to saying, hey, if your FIP is almost a full run higher than your career ERA, how much longer can you possibly sustain that before you end up kind of being the guy with your ERA that your FIP says you should be? That's kind of what happened to Dakota Hudson last year as he regressed back to the mean and with a 4.45 ERA in 2022 was virtually exactly the guy that his career FIP has always said that he's been. Four and a half ERA pitcher is what he should be independent of his fielding. And look, the Cardinals fielding, we've talked about how it's a little bit different, a little bit changed. Arenado started slow this year. This obviously does not apply to Dakota because he wasn't in the big leagues all year. But in general, it's been kind of a down season for the Cardinals defensively, a little bit disjointed compared to what you have seen in, say, 2022-2021 when they have been winning gold gloves all over the diamond and everybody was happy. I don't know how much the pitch clock has had an impact on Dakota Hudson. He's used it in the minors because he's been down there on rehab assignments and on regular assignments with the lack of performance at the big league level. So it's not like the pitch clock is anything brand new to him. The lack of a shift, the ban of the shift, is perhaps something that has hindered the Cardinals in ways that we might not even completely understand this year with how much they have been a pitch-to-contact staff in the past. But I feel like you can go round and round on what your opinion would be of a player like Dakota Hudson. But it is really refreshing to see 
a night like tonight where he strikes out seven and in seven innings. And I said near the top of the show, I'll kind of give my opinion on what you need to see from Dakota in order to kind of let him back into your life in, in terms of consideration for whether or not he's a guy that you'd, you'd at least keep in mind for the rotation next year. It's got to be what you saw tonight in terms of strikeouts. He's got to be able to miss bats and not rely on his defense for everything. And the other portion of that equation has got to be limiting the walks, which is something that he's really never been able to do. He gave up three walks tonight, which is honestly too many. Dakota needs to live in that one or two walks per outing kind of range. If he doesn't, I just don't know how far he's going to get. Granted, he has had an uncanny ability over the course of his career to get those walks to turn into double plays. It's happened a couple of times tonight where he was able to get the double play ball to get out of something. He is that sinker baller, and that is a weapon that's in his arsenal. But just imagine what it might look like if you didn't give away free passes every other inning, as he's kind of tended to do throughout the course of his major league career. I don't know if that's something that the Cardinals are going to be able to let go of. If he continues to have that sort of trajectory, I just don't think that you're going to be able to realistically think that Dakota Hudson is going to improve things in those underlying numbers. I'm a big fan of Dakota Hudson's though. I even sent the tweet out that he's the greatest Dak to ever come from Mississippi State University Athletics. Obviously a reference to Dak Prescott. And that is something that I actually said to Dakota Hudson one time a few years ago down at spring training. And uh, I didn't get much more than a sheepish grin. And uh, I'm not sure about that, but I thought it was funny. Maybe he didn't think it was that funny. But nevertheless, let me know what you think on Dakota Hudson's nice start. I'm not going to end up ripping him or anything for the home run. I think there were some circumstances around that that I'm not going to say were unavoidable, but it's unfortunate that it happened the way that it did. Still, ultimately, a quality start. Getting through seven innings is not something we have seen all that often from the St. Louis Cardinals rotation this year. So a nice showing, and I think certainly you're going to get more opportunities for Dakota Hudson every fifth day based on the way things are going. And if there's a point in the season where maybe they look to a direction of a guy like Michael McGreevy or Gordon Graceffo or somebody else from that AAA rotation just to kind of see what it looks like. One of the two, whether it's Libertor or Hudson, would maybe be the guys to get bumped in that instance pending injury for somebody else. So Hudson fighting for a job, I think, every fifth day and certainly fighting to stay on the radar when it comes to 2024 because in 2023, he was absolutely not on the radar from the word go. And he's only here right now, I think, out of necessity for the Cardinals. But he's getting a chance to show himself and I think playing with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, it certainly seemed like tonight. So good to see that from Hudson. Bottom line, strikeouts have got to continue, got to continue to miss bats. Can't keep walking, guys. Have to limit those to the best of his ability. And then I think the Cardinals would maybe start to see a little more belief in him. But I know that he was a frustrating guy for a guy like Ollie Marmo last year. You can remember a couple of different times in post games where Ollie would say, he's just got to pick up the pace. There's just nothing else to it but to do it. And that was frustrating to watch. Of course, now the pitch clock kind of takes that impact out of the game entirely. But you still don't like it to see a guy give up a bunch of hits and walks and runs. Fortunately for Hudson, pretty good night at the ballpark. Let me know what you think, though, in the comments section on how you're evaluating the evening from Dakota Hudson. Seven innings, two hits, three runs, all earned, three walks, but seven strikeouts on the night for Hudson, whose ERA for the season is 4.10. And again, 3.6 for his career in Major League Baseball. Let's, though, shift gears into talking about this Cardinal outfield because you got still a logjam. It's the same logjam that you had last week before the trade deadline when we were wondering how many of the outfielders from that group would still be on the Cardinals after August 1st. The answer ended up being all of them. Cardinals did not make a trade of an outfielder at the deadline, preferring instead to allow that can to get kicked down the road until the upcoming offseason when I do believe they're going to have to make some difficult decisions because 
They came into the season trumping up and touting the depth and how it's really good to have that level of competition in the outfield group. But I think they realized pretty early on that it was overkill when you had Newt Barr, O'Neill, Carlson, Burleson, who they were very aggressive in getting opportunities for in the outfield mix early on. Jordan Walker making the opening day roster. There was even some consideration for a guy like Juan Yepes earlier on in the season, not on the opening day roster, but in the general mix. Ultimately, it just boiled down to too many cooks in the kitchen. They found the reason that they could to send Jordan Walker down for a little while. I still maintain that that didn't need to happen. Walker, by the way, hitting one of the home runs tonight for St. Louis. Lars Newpar had some time on the injured list. We know that Tyler O'Neill missed some time, and that kind of delayed the situation from getting to a really bad point where you just had multiple outfielders on a given night riding pine. But that's basically where you'd be at right now, other than for the fact that the Cardinals, now that Brendan Donovan is out for the season, can mix and match a little more with that DH spot and do what I kind of thought they would at the beginning of the year by putting an outfielder in that role on occasion. Last night, I believe Walker had the, the spot, and tonight it was Alec Burleson. And so you can allow everybody to breathe a little bit. We know that the guy getting squeezed for the most part is Dylan Carlson, and that's just kind of going to be the nature of it, I think, for a little while. And it's going to be up to him to do the most with his opportunities. But as we've talked about, I don't think that's Ollie Marmel, A, a decision that is only being made by him. He does make out the lineup card, but I think there is an organizational approach to give opportunities to some other guys that they might believe has higher upside or at least higher upside in the immediate future when it comes to facing right-handed pitching. Alec Burleson, I think they feel that way about, and uh, certainly guys like Lars Newpar and, and even Tyler O'Neill. They don't worry about the handedness with him. I think they're trying to get Tyler O'Neill going to see whether they can get the most out of him, and that leads to a more robust opportunity to trade him in the offseason off of two really good months if he stays healthy or situation where they look at Tyler O'Neill and go, hey, he's got one more year before free agency. But if we're prioritizing 2024, we've come to the position that Tyler O'Neill as our everyday left fielder is the best way to win baseball games. And there is an argument to be made that that would be true. We know that Tyler O'Neill has the potential. We know that he has proven it. There has been proof of concept for Tyler O'Neill being a difference-making player. Going to read you his 2021 stats. I know that's been two years since we've seen this version of him. But a 286 average, a 352 on base, and a 560 slug for a 912 OPS when he mashed 34 home runs in 537 plate appearances, he was out of his mind. And he also won a gold glove that year, which leads to an eighth place finish in the MVP vote for the National League. That is the equation. And that's what Tyler O'Neill brings to the table when he is healthy and when he is feeling confident in his game. I don't know which is more difficult to come by because at times he might be healthy. But Tyler O'Neill, a very momentum-based player, and confidence can certainly be a chase for a guy like him at times when he doesn't find possession of it. I think one thing that simply had to happen in order to get Tyler O'Neill more firmly into that space is what happened yesterday when the Cardinals didn't trade him. He was able to see through the trade deadline, exhale, breathe after it was finally over, which is not to say that his career would have been over if he were traded. And If anything, it would have been maybe a fresh start kind of get some of the baggage that has uh, followed him around with some of the injuries that he's dealt with in St. Louis out of the way. I don't know. Maybe it could have been a positive for him, but I think you're a nervous player if you're thinking about looking over your shoulder, looking over your phone as to what could be coming down the pike. And I think for Tyler O'Neill, it was a reasonable thing to be thinking about. There was the report that suggested the Cardinals weren't going to be trading him, but we talked about how that was probably not as a result of they were putting all their weight behind him. It was more about, 
if we wanted to trade him, I just don't think we're getting enough for him at this point. His value has not often been lower than it is right now. And as the Cardinals, they said, we just don't want to entertain that unless we're getting fair value for Tyler O'Neill. So not exactly the major vote of confidence, I think, that was behind the fact that they didn't trade him. But nevertheless, it's a commitment now for at least the next couple of months. And they did say publicly, like, he's our everyday left fielder. So that was the boost of confidence. Um, they gave him a lot of confidence boost before the injuries early this season. They said he could be the center fielder and he was the guy and go out and get it. It's time to do it. And a lot of those things just didn't land for him for various reasons. And then the injuries kind of mounted and Tyler O'Neill was a non-factor for a lot of the season. But now that he's back, we've seen a little bit of a different version of him, I think, since coming off the IL and he's locked it in over the past couple of days with two home runs since the trade deadline came through home run in each of the games Tuesday and Wednesday, but this was a question from last night, or the answer to it anyway, from Tyler O'Neill when it came to following the rumors and the potential that he might have been on the trade block ahead of Tuesday's 5 p.m. deadline. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a lot for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I try and stay away from it as best I can, but I, I read I read most of the same stuff that you guys read too. So, um, you know, it is what it is, part of the business. Um you know, I just try and block out as best I can every day. Um, you know, I got a job to do, and it's uh, it's easy to focus once I get to the field, of course. So, um, you know, it's easy just putting the phone down, and getting to work. That was Tyler O'Neill last night on Tuesday, talking about the nature of the trade deadline and the rumors that fly around. And being candid, I thought when it came to the awareness of, yeah, I see the same thing you guys all see out there. I read the same stuff you read, and at some point, though, you got to put the phone down and go play ball. Those are a lot of things, I think, from a human perspective to try and manage. And Tyler has had a lot going on, obviously. So for him to be playing the way that he's playing now, I think partially is something I can attribute to the trade deadline being over and done with. Now, of course, he was playing strong baseball before that. And I believe that is a measure of his ability to kind of block out some of the noise. But you could definitely see the possibility of him hitting the runway here now that the trade deadline has come and gone. And he's still here and he's got that vote of confidence to basically be an everyday player outside of a rest day here and there, which I think can only help with durability and things of that nature. So the confidence is the factor that Tyler O'Neill is certainly chasing, and I decided to ask him about some of that. Here's a little back and forth within the Tuesday night media scrum at Tyler O'Neill's locker. You'll hear my first question to him, his answer, and then a follow-up that Tyler O'Neill tackles as well. How much have you felt at ease in all aspects of your game, defensively base running at the plate since coming back from the I.L.? Yeah, you know, I'm feeling physically good, so I think there's, uh, you know, again, there's confidence in that for me. I can just kind of show up and trust my routine and, um, you know, just go play and go compete, you know, rather than having to be fighting stuff and, you know, spending additional time in the training room and, um, you know, whatnot. That, that's in the rearview mirror for me now. So, um, you know, I'm just focused on, Focus on the here and now and, um, you know, just playing ball again. Are you a guy where you feel like making a big play in the field can lead to something feeling good at the plate and kind of vice versa, just all with all elements going at once kind of feeds into itself? Yeah, sure, I, I, I would say so. Um, you know, I think I've shown what I can do on the defensive side of the ball and the offensive side of the ball. So, um, you know, confidence is a funny thing, though. Um, you know, once it gets rolling, then it stays rolling. So, um, you know, see how it goes. That was Cardinals left fielder Tyler O'Neill on the nature of confidence, and it seems like right now he has found that sweet spot where he's in the middle of a, of a confident stretch. Can he keep it going? Can he stay on the field? And then can he stay in that headspace where things are working out for him and the defensive plays feed into the at-bats, feed into the base running, feed into the defensive plays, 
and it just becomes kind of that self-fulfilling prophecy, but in a really positive way for Tyler O'Neill. He is a freight train when things are going well, and he can be that kind of force for the Cardinals. Another home run tonight for Tyler O'Neill, also a home run for Lars Newpar. It seems like just about two, three weeks ago, I was taking a look, I think maybe it was right around the All-Star break, at the numbers for Lars Newpar, and I was making the comparison of, well, Dylan Carlson's OPS is like 25 points below Newtbar's. I think it was actually like 21 points at the time. Obviously, D.C. has trailed off uh, in conjunction a little bit with them basically saying you're not going to get as much playing time. And he has kind of, I think, had a hard time, at least in, in the way that it is manifested on the field and at the batter's box, finding ways to keep momentum with sporadic playing time. But when it comes to Lars Newtbar, I made the comment that, like, look, if you just look at Newt's numbers, the batting average is what it is, but the on-base numbers are still strong. He is a solid defender at every position, not a great center fielder, but I think a, a very serviceable one. It's just a matter of his home runs had been down. Even the doubles had been up for Lars Newpard. So the, the slugging percentage was down as a result of just not running into enough home runs. And I said, if he runs into a few more home runs, suddenly his numbers are going to look electric. And lo and behold, that's exactly what has happened. Over the past 15 games, he's hit five home runs. Over the last seven games, though, specifically, he has hit four home runs. 458 average over that stretch and slugging 1,000. Yeah, that'll do wonders for your game. He's slugging 700 over the last 15 games. And Lars Newpar has certainly come around as a result. His season numbers up to an 825 OPS, 11 home runs, 7 stolen bases. This is a guy that can certainly be a 2020 guy in his future with the athleticism that he brings. I have long been a Lars Newpar supporter back to the days when people were trying to move him for Frankie Montas. And I'm here to tell you, he is going to be a St. Louis Cardinal for a long, long time. I don't know if he's going to be the everyday center fielder or if they find a way to shift him back to a corner next year. If Tyler O'Neill ends up staying, that could have an impact on that decision. If Jordan Walker can end up sticking in the outfield defensively, that will have an impact on that as well. Not 100% sure the way that's going to go. That's kind of the topic of conversation that we're looking into where you say, well, tonight, new bar homers, O'Neill homers. Jordan Walker homers. We'll talk a little bit more about him and, and update you on where his numbers are this season for St. Louis. He's batting eighth in the order today, which is something that you only really saw early on with Jordan Walker. We're starting to see it a little bit more recently as he's kind of slumped. We'll give you some of the updates on his recent stats, but the home run tonight gets him a double-digit home run season, which you'll love to see. But when it comes to Lars Newpar, I mean, an 825 OPS, if you had a lineup of those guys, you would win a ton of games. Lars Newpar is the kind of guy that I think can be an 800 OPS in the big leagues, and the more home runs that he would potentially add to that, the quicker he becomes an unstoppable force when you're going to look at the batting numbers and the OPS and everything up and down the order. It's going to be really, really impressive for Lars Newpar. Like, he's got 11 home runs this year. That's probably a pace of like 16, 17, maybe 18 home runs. I know he hasn't played a full season because he had some injuries, so maybe over the course of a full you know, 550 plate appearance season, that would be more like a, a 20 to 25 home run guy. If Lars Newpar this year hits 20 plus home runs, his numbers are going to be insane. And given the fact that he's homered four times over the past seven games, I'm not going to put it past him to be able to accomplish that. But the great thing about him is the on-base numbers never really go away. He's not a guy who tends to slump super long when he does struggle at times. It's something that he usually is able to get over relatively quickly and that just makes it really difficult for him to, at the end of a season, have bad numbers. Start last year, he was really struggling. But remember, he was bouncing back and forth between Memphis and St. Louis in, in uh, the 2022 campaign, which, by the way, Corey Dickerson was kind of a reason for that. And the Nationals actually DFA'd him today. So there's a little bit of an update on a former Cardinal.
But Newt Bar finished the season last year with a 228 average, despite hitting like, I don't know, 140 for the first couple of months. Like it was really, really low. But even with a 228 batting average all of last season, he had a 340 on base. That just shows the plate discipline and the, his ability to take the walk when they give it to him. Great batter's eye. When they've got Lars Newpar and Brendan Donovan going, I don't care which one you bat first, but the other one should bat second. And I, I just don't really care too much about the notion of the left-right stuff. I guess there's a world in which you could convince me to put Lars Newpar third if he's hitting the 20-plus the home runs and allow Goldschmidt to stay second so you really have a dynamic force because you could go... In a perfect world, with everybody healthy, you could go Donovan, Goldschmidt, Newt Bar, Arenado, and then Gorman fifth. I would say you just hope that Gorman hits enough home runs that he is worthy of the five of the three spot, I should say, and then Newt Bar five to kind of re-kickstart the lineup. Like you can have a top of top four of your order, where you set the table at the top with Donovan, and then you do it all over again when it comes to Newt Bar batting five and have some more power threats like Jordan Walker behind him. I don't understand. I know the Cardinals have terrible pitching, but when you think about a potentially healthy lineup, and don't ask me exactly how the positions work out. I'm sure you could massage it and make it work, especially with a guy like Donovan, the flexibility that he brings, and one of the guys is going to be in the DH spot. But legitimately, if you had everybody kind of rolling with their mojo and it was something like Donovan, Goldschmidt, Gorman, Arenado, Lars Newtbar, Jordan Walker, Wilson Contreras batting seventh. Tommy Edmond down there as well. I'm trying to think about what the other spots would be. Tommy could play shortstop. You've got your whole infield, so I guess it would be another outfielder that you'd be looking at. Tyler O'Neill batting eighth and Tommy batting ninth. I mean, that would be ridiculously stacked, and I actually think it does work out positionally. A little bit right-handed heavy at the bottom especially if you're going to go Tommy batting ninth because he could switch hit for you and be a lefty threat. But I don't know who else you'd want to bat ninth. You probably wouldn't want Tyler O'Neill batting that low, but he would be an interesting guy to turn over the lineup as well. But like if he had everybody healthy and performing, you could see the light on how this Cardinal offense could be really good next year. It's kind of pretty good this year. I think it's a matter of fixing the pitching situation and allowing that offense to... Be healthy, which, of course, it's not always going to be fully healthy, right? Like, John Mozeliak has kind of made the injury excuse a number of times when talking about the reasons behind this field season for the Cardinals, and I get it. There have been injuries, but every team goes through them, and that's kind of the point of depth and making sure you have guys at different positions that can can enter into the fray when you need them to. But I'm looking at the Cardinals' numbers this year offensively. They're 12th in the majors in runs scored at 512 at this point. But the OPS is 7th in baseball at 761. So they haven't fully capitalized on the OPS in terms of being quite the same in the runs department. But, man, there is a world in which this is a really strong offense. And you could even make the case, I'm not trying to kick Tommy out the door, but Mason Wynn probably ready by the 2024 opening day. I mean, we're going to see him, I think, later this season, late August, early September. Mason Wynn batting ninth. I think there's a world in which that makes sense. And maybe Tommy is a guy that because depth is important, he ends up being your roving utility guy along with Donovan or Tommy or, or, uh, or Donovan could play second base and Gorman, obviously able to play second base, but that allows you to mix in the DH differently. And Tommy can play center. He can play 
really a corner outfield if you needed him to. He can play any of the infield spots, except doesn't really play first, but Donovan does that. I mean, there's a world in which it makes a whole lot of sense, but how do you find the pitching maybe without trading one of those guys away would possibly be the question. But like, I still think the future is bright for this Cardinals team. You do need everybody in that lineup to live up to expectations. And I think the the element of patience and the Cardinals having patience with, with the different guys that go through some struggles I think is probably over. I don't think they're going to be all that patient. Uh, I think they're going to have to make some decisions that are going to give this group a sense of finality when it comes to the 2024 team. But another one that I want to talk about, another guy that's in that group that I didn't list in the mock starting lineup is Alec Burleson. And I think that people kind of wrote him off because they didn't see much in the way of numbers from him early on in the season. But I just want to take a look up and down at his stat line and kind of where he's at. I still will mention the Jordan Walker stuff, but let me do Burleson first. 697 is the OPS, which is not all that impressive. Only a 240 batting average, which is unfortunate because he's supposed to be a contact-oriented guy. But I think if you look at the underlying numbers, those would suggest that Burleson has not hit into the best of luck this season. And the on-base percentage, just 291, doesn't walk a ton. If he could find a way to walk more, that would be definitely helpful to his cause. But the 406 slug with uh, just seven home runs and 207, uh, 217 plate appearances, I should say, or 217 at-bats, for Burleson, so not a huge power hitter. You'd think looking at him, maybe his name's Burley, literally, so you'd think he might be a slugger. I think he can develop more of a power stroke, seven home runs, and hit one tonight, obviously, big three-run shot. But what's really interesting to me about Alec Burleson, and it may go under the radar a little bit, but he's got just 26 strikeouts all season long. He is not a guy who strikes out very often at all, just 26 times on the year. There's a characteristic to that that I think the Cardinals certainly do appreciate. So if he can settle into his role a little bit more, I don't think... I mean, you saw the rumors and the different reports of teams asking on Alec Burleson, and yet the deadline came and went, and Alec Burleson was not traded. Cardinals were in a position where they were giving up on short-term assets, expiring contracts, because they knew the season was over. But if you asked on any of their other guys, they were going to demand a legitimate pitcher back. I think for Carlson, I think the price was probably the same on Burleson, where they said, look, this guy's got infinite team control. Like he's a rookie at this point and he's going to be around a, a long time in, in several years before we have to pay him too. You could do a lot worse than having a guy like Burleson, whether it's off your bench or in your lineup. The problem is he's another one of those guys without a home defensively, especially on a Cardinal team that has Paul Goldschmidt. And I think it's good to have Paul Goldschmidt because he's one of your best players. But if there was a world in which you didn't have Goldschmidt and Burleson was your first baseman, you're probably sacrificing a little bit from a power standpoint. Cardinal fans are used to having Albert Pujols and Paul Goldschmidt and like superstar slugging first baseman. But I think it would also be one of those deals where your lineup would, would end up fitting together rather interestingly um, because Burleson's natural position is first base. But they found ways to put him in the outfield to get the bat in the lineup. I don't think the Cardinals are ready to give up yet on that bat. And I think there's reason not to give up on it. I want to see a lot of Alec Burleson, I've decided, over the stretch run of the season, which is difficult. Like, you don't really have a lot of space to put guys, and I understand that. And I've always kind of stumped for Dylan Carlson to say that he should get opportunities as well. But we know he's not going to play against right-handed pitching, and we know that Alec Burleson is. So finding ways creatively to get him into the mix, I think, would benefit the Cardinals to kind of see what you can have in him. And potentially, I mean, teams are already probably going to value him well when it comes to the trade market. But if he really finishes strong and you do have to decide to move on 
from some of your position players in order to clear the logjam and address the pitching situation, Alec Burleson could end up being a very valuable guy if you give him some run down the stretch and then they decide to trade him. I just don't know if the match is going to be there in terms of what the Cardinals expect his value should be and what other teams are going to be willing to offer. I think they tried to buy him low, and the Cardinals were like, nice try, it's not happening. Don't count out Alec Burleson just yet. I agree that it was a little bit weird the way that he was force-fed into playing time early on in the season. It really feels like the Cardinals approached this from a very cookie-cutter perspective where a lot of the moves like Tyler O'Neill in center and lots of Burleson, it was very spreadsheet-like, very spreadsheety, and I don't think it worked out. It was kind of sheety the way that it worked out on the field, if you feel me. But I do think there is some legitimacy to the idea that Alec Burleson might be a dude, might be a hitter at this level. And now is the perfect time to be able to find out more about him, which is why, by the way, I do agree with the tweet that Jeff Jones sent out where he basically said, you're playing the platoon advantage in the bottom of the eighth inning of a game you already lead by four, and it's August 2nd, and you're 14 games below 500. Kind of feels like overkill in that spot. And I totally agree with the the notion of maybe a hint of sarcasm in that tweet because Taylor Motter pinch hitting for the platoon advantage for Alec Burleson probably doesn't need to happen. Like if you're facing a lefty, maybe you just let Alec Burleson face the lefty because he's a young player that you'd probably like to learn more about. 24 years old, how does he respond in that situation? Get him those reps because this season doesn't matter. But we know that Ollie Marmel is managing to win the day. I, I just maybe am not entirely convinced that even in a left-on-left matchup, Burleson might not be just as reasonable of an option as as making sure Taylor Motter gets that A-B. But nevertheless, we've looked at Burleson. We've looked at all these guys. I want to make sure we touch on Jordan Walker before we get out of here. He did have the home run tonight to get him up to 10 for the season. The batting average is 270, and I think there is room to grow in that regard when it comes to Jordan Walker. Again, he is a 21-year-old rookie who didn't turn 21 until May. He started this season in the big leagues at age 20 and is a special, special player offensively. 270 the average, 333 the on-base, and 436 the slug at age 21, a young 21, and now has 10 home runs. I just want to redirect you back to Nolan Gorman's season last year. He hit, I want to say it was 14 home runs. I believe I've memorized the OPS from Gorman's rookie year as 721. And now look at what we're seeing from Nolan Gorman, a real breakout season in year two. He's got an 819 OPS, 22 home runs on the season, really has taken a step forward. And Nolan Gorman is two years older at age 23 now than Jordan Walker, who is currently 21. So to think that Nolan Gorman had a 721 OPS and then basically has added 100 points to that in year two, Jordan Walker, as a younger player, less experienced in professional baseball, a 769 OPS right now as a rookie, as a 21-year-old rookie, I don't care what the wins above replacement says. I know he's been a butcher in right field. He's learning. He's only been playing the position for a year. And yes, the offseason is going to be critical for Jordan Walker to improve as a defensive outfielder. But I'll tell you this, what the bat is freaking real. For this guy to have 10 home runs, 436 on the slug, 333 on the on base, which adds up to a 769 OPS. That's tremendous out of Jordan Walker. Don't overlook those numbers in consideration of what he's doing at the age he is. It's special. It's special, and he's only going to continue to get better. So it's going to be an interesting situation to see how the Cardinals handle the outfield mix, obviously. I still think you have too many cooks in the kitchen. I am a big fan of Dylan Carlson, but you know what? It's really hard to stump for Dylan to have played tonight when you end up seeing all the guys that uh, were able to have success against Joe Ryan. Everybody in the outfield mix, including the DH tonight, Burleson, 
homering to pace the Cardinals in a 7-3 win. And by the way, I looked before the game and noticed that Joe Ryan actually kind of has a reverse splits thing going on where he's tougher on left-handed batters as a right-handed pitcher. And until that, I thought, man, Alec Burleson feels like a guy who's probably going to go yard tonight. And then, of course, uh, I looked at the numbers and was like, oh, yeah, he probably won't because Joe Ryan's not really giving up a lot of power to left-handed batters. And sure enough, Burleson fights the power and gets it done, as did Newbar. So I think it's impressive. I just wanted to note, like, you might not have considered, oh, it's really impressive for those guys to go go yard against a right-handed pitcher. Uh, but in this case, it, it was the case. I think they deserve Newbar and Burleson even a little bit more credit for doing it against a guy like Ryan, who obviously has given up a lot of home runs recently. He's got given up eight now in his last three starts, which does not reflect well on him. But typically, he still hasn't given up a lot of power to left-handed batters, which is the reason I even give you this little diatribe here toward the end of the show today. I wondered if there would have been a consideration for a guy like Dylan to bat right-handed against him, given the reverse splits aspect of it for Joe Ryan, but he wasn't in the in, in the lineup anyway, and so that's fine. Obviously, not second guessing Ollie Marmel on that. Everybody that was in the outfield mix had a really nice night offensively. And by the way, another little bit of an addition to add to that conversation surrounding Joe Ryan, Tommy Edmond did actually bat right handed against him tonight because of those reverse splits for the Minnesota Stars. So just something interesting to keep in mind when it comes to the Cardinal switch hitters. I'd like to kind of make note of Tommy Edmond has definitely been doing that a little bit more this season against right handed pitching. Batting right on right, even when he's got the switch hitting ability, has been better from the right side all season long in really his entire career. But when there's particular pitchers that it makes sense to do it against, he has made the decision to go right on right and works out tonight. I know he had at least one base hit in this game as the Cardinals get the 7-3 to win. But let me know in the YouTube comment section below generally kind of your thoughts on the Cardinals outfield and who you think they should be backing at this point when it comes to 2024 Everybody knows I'm a big fan of Dylan Carlson. I still think he's got a bright future ahead of him. But if Lars Newpar proves to be able to handle the center field job defensively, which I think he's done a better job of late, and Jordan Walker continues to hit, Burleson continues to hit, and and Tyler O'Neill was an interesting one, man. I think that's kind of the skeleton key that unlocks this entire thing. If he is that dude, it's going to be very hard to hold down this Cardinals lineup on a consistent basis because you could make the case that while Ollie said, hey, on a given night, he could be the best player on the field, Tyler O'Neill could also be like the third or fourth or fifth best player offensively in this lineup. I mean, by 2024, I, I might still end up having Arnado Goldschmidt above him. I might have Jordan Walker elevate to that point. Nolan Gorman is certainly in that conversation when he's going right. Lars Newpark could be in that conversation as well. So you have got a group of like, and that's not even to speak of Wilson Contreras, who has done at least a nice job offensively this year. Uh, especially after the slow start. So up and down the lineup, you can at least start to see the makings of a kind of group that I was teasing early on in the season that could be uh, the type of team to lead MLB and run scored. Obviously, that's not going to come to fruition, but the group is there, I think, when it comes to the, the bare bones of this team. Whether or not they can put it together in 2024 in conjunction with better pitching remains to be seen, but let me know in the YouTube comments section below what you think about this entire situation. Like this video, leave that comment. Make sure to drop a subscription. Subscribe to the Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals Writer channel on YouTube so that you never miss any of our Cardinals conversation and content throughout the year. That is going to do it, though, for this edition of the show. Appreciate you guys, as always, for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Be Safe Daily. Peace.